This week and every week, Life and Crimes is brought to you by subscribers of The Herald Sun. If you like the podcast and want to support it, go to heraldsun.com.au forward slash Andrew Rule and click on any article to begin. Last week on Life and Crimes. On the way to the new share farm, Leslie's spirits began to lift, as they always did, when Ray was being nice, as she used to put it. Being nice meant not belting her. Susan, two and a half, and Raymond, 14 months old, cowered when they heard the raised voices. When their father started hitting their mother, they started crying. Ray's murderous temper was rarely displayed in public. Leslie was the only one to see it regularly. That was the first time Leslie told him he was sick in the head, a phrase which crept into most of her thoughts from then on. And it was the first and only time she'd shown any interest in what she later described as the dull-coloured brown rifle that Ray kept on top of the wardrobe in their bedroom. I'm Andrew Rule. This is Life and Crimes. This week we resume our special episodes where we revisit my first book, Cuckoo, which is the story of the sex killer known as Mr Stinky. From the night it opened in February 1965, the Shepparton Civic Centre was a huge success. The new Cream Brick Hall boasted a revolving stage coloured spotlights and space for 2,000 people. An average of 1,500 attended the Saturday night dances, which were advertised as the biggest in provincial Australia. And the steadily more ambitious concerts, which were to become a feature that year, drew even bigger crowds. In June 1965, almost 3,000 people packed the centre to see Billy Thorpe and the Aztecs and local heroes Tony and the Chantels. The Aztecs were billed as Australia's top band and the Chantels as Victoria's top band. Proof of Shepparton's growing status was a long story devoted to the concert in the Melbourne Sun under the heading Old Shep Goes Hep. The Civic Centre had been popular all during 1965. Its first complete summer season promised to set records. As the weather warmed after Christmas, the outriders of the annual invasion of fruit pickers arrived rolling through town to the orchards in cars covered with the dust of faraway places. By February, with the fruit ripening, the trickle had become a stream that would swell the local population by at least 3,000. Most of the pickers were young, unattached and free with their money and their fists. On Friday nights and Saturdays, they flocked into Shepparton like sailors on shore leave, always looking for a good time, often finding trouble. They crowded the pubs, the cafes and footpaths. They drove slow laps of the main blocks in their cars, wolf-whistled local girls and brawled with local youths. And if they could muster the door money, six shillings and sixpence, and a jacket and tie, they went to the dance in the new hall. That summer, the Saturday night dances became bigger than ever, drawing people from a radius of 200 kilometres, the way that moths gather and beat against a lamp on a hot night. Which meant that if an outside promoter wanted to book the Civic Centre, it had to be a weeknight. Which was why, when promoters trading as Nullarbor Tours brought a show they billed as the Mod Spectacular to Shepparton that month, it had to be held on a Thursday. Thursday, February the 10th, 1966.
Gary Haywood was good-looking. He cut a dash in his car, an FJ Holden that was the envy of half the teenagers in Shepparton. The car guaranteed that Gary always had plenty of friends, whether he wanted them or not. And being Gary, he usually did. He liked to bask in the admiration of his peers. Gary had a girlfriend called Gail. And on this Thursday night, Gail knew, as everybody did, that there would be a concert that evening at the Civic Centre. But neither she nor Gary would be paid until next day, Friday. And so they agreed to save their once-a-week outing until then. Well, that's how it seemed to her. If Gary had other plans at that stage, he certainly didn't tell Gail in the 10 minutes or so it took for him to drive her home from work to Marupna. She assumed he was going home to eat with his family before an early night, ready for work next morning. It was about quarter to six when the Green Holden pulled into the drive at Gail's parents' house. As Gary backed out, Gail put her hands on the gleaming bonnet as if to help the car by pushing it. Then, still smiling at her little joke, she went inside. She never saw him again. As his girlfriend believed, Gary Haywood did go straight home after he dropped her off, and he did eat with his family. But as his little brother Alan soon found out, Gary had decided to go to the concert after all. Alan, who was 14, knew this because he washed the cherished FJ Holden for the outing. This pleased him greatly. He hero-worshipped his big brother, and he loved cars. While Alan washed the car, Gary sneaked some of his mother's lemons, squeezed them and rinsed his hair with the juice in an attempt to bleach it. When his mate Lindsay arrived shortly after 7pm, Alan pleaded with them to let him come too, but the older pair fobbed him off. The kind-hearted Gary often let Alan come on outings, but this time there might have been plans already laid which would make a kid brother an embarrassment. Alan mooched inside to watch television. The news was full of the Beaumont case. Three children had vanished in South Australia. He talked to his mother about how awful it was, how sorry he felt for the family of the missing children. It was a Thursday with school and jobs to be attended next morning, but the concert gave Shepparton a Saturday night feel. The warm weather, the crowds of pickers and the amusement carnival set up near the lake all titillated the mood of anticipation. In the car park behind the Civic Centre that afternoon, road crews had been unloading instruments, microphones and other gear to be used that night. It was a good line-up, even by Shepparton's high standards. Billy Adams, billed as a star of the Go Show, Yvonne Barrett, just returned from a troop entertainment tour of Vietnam, Roland Storm, billed as a Sydney TV idol, The Changing Times, who had a hit version of the song Mary Lou. In a house around the corner from Haywoods, a wiry kid called Norm Gillespie was wondering what to wear. Norm was 15 and had just started his last year of school and his first year of chasing girls, a pastime he found almost as interesting as football. He was a proud owner of a new suit that he had pestered his parents to buy so he could wear it to the Saturday night dances. But this night, a jacket and tie were not required, so there were hard decisions to be made about what looked sharp. He settled for narrow leg trousers, desert boots and an open neck shirt, then carefully combed his fringe down over his forehead, just like the picture of Normie Rowe on his bedroom wall. One reason Norm Gillespie wanted to look good was that he thought he might get a chance to talk to a girl who lived a few blocks away in Maxwell Street, 
a girl called Rosalind Medill. Rosalind was 14 and the third daughter of Fred Medill, a dairy farmer who had shifted with his wife Alma and four daughters from the nearby district of Andira a few years before. By 1966, their only son, Rodney, was working the farm and the four girls lived with their parents. The youngest was Alison, who was still at primary school. The oldest was Leslie. Between Leslie and Rosalind was Abina, who had just left high school to start work in the office of Haywood's Panel Works. Norm Gillespie knew Abina and Rosalind well. Like him, they were members of the church group at St Andrews, where they played badminton and tennis. Rosalind was a quiet girl, but it seemed that in the few months that Abina had been working, she had been exposed to a more larrikin brand of male company than she was used to at church tennis parties, and her determination to be popular with her new acquaintances was beginning to show. In little things such as the packet of Alpine cigarettes she tucked into her handbag before she went out, and in bigger ones such as agreeing to meet the young tradies from Haywoods outside the Star Bowl, at a time when her father and the youth who thought of himself as her boyfriend believed she would be at the concert. Although his wife was going to visit friends in the country that evening, Fred Medill, a cautious father, did not deviate from his usual custom of taking his daughters by car rather than letting them walk after dark. He backed his car out of the drive of their neat violet-coloured weatherboard house about 8.30pm with Rosalind and Abina on board. On the way, they picked up a girl of Abina's age, Jan Frost, who lived nearby, and another younger girl called Ray Croxford. When they reached the Civic Centre, there was so much traffic that Mr Medill couldn't park and escort the girls to the door. He let them out in the street and went home satisfied that Abina's latest boyfriend, a young mechanic called Ian Urquhart, would bring the two sisters home at midnight after working late at the local Ford dealers. By the time Fred Medill's car turned the corner, his daughters had chosen different ways. Rosalind and Ray Croxford went into the hall, but Abina Medill and Jan Frost, the older pair, walked straight towards the Star Bowl bowling alley. Abina and Jan had met from Malted Milk at lunchtime that day, and Abina had confided to Jan that she had arranged to meet boys from her work at the bowling alley. Jan had not intended to go to the concert, but later had argued with her boyfriend and decided to keep Abina company rather than hang around. They reached the bowl around 8.45pm. Waiting for them was the dark green FJ Holden, by this time with four boys in it. Gary Haywood always had plenty of mates. It was about 10.30pm that night when Gary Haywood got back to his car from the concert where he'd been watching the bands on stage. Soon after he got to the car, Jan Frost, who had been sitting uncomfortably in the front seat with Gary's mate Paul Haywood, made an excuse and left. Before going, Jan asked Abina several times if she wanted to come with her. Abina didn't. Jan walked towards the hall, then saw her boyfriend Max Hart drive past. Relieved, she went over to join him. Gary asked his cousin and another mate called Victor to get out of the car so that he could drive down to the lake with Abina. They objected and said they wanted some guarantee that he would come back and drive them home by midnight. Gary gave Victor a set of keys and Abina gave him her wristwatch. Then Gary drove off with Abina still sitting in the back seat. 
It was about 10.45pm. Gary Haywood came back to the Civic Centre that night, but he was there earlier than his friends expected, and somehow they missed him. About 11.15pm, just before the concert ended, a girl who knew Gary by sight saw him leaning on a rail on the left-hand entrance of the foyer. He was looking into the hall, as if watching for somebody. The observer, Eileen O'Brien, noticed he was wearing a brown jumper and an orange check shirt, similar to one her brother Patrick had. A few minutes later, another girl, Patricia Webber, left the hall with some friends and turned into Wellsford Street to walk home. She had gone only a short way when she saw Haywood drive past in the famous Green Holden. The car turned left out of Nixon Street and drove south along Wellsford Street at a normal speed then turned right. The girl did not notice if there was anybody else in the vehicle. She was the last person in Shepparton to see Gary Haywood alive. Listeners will skip several paragraphs there and just go straight to the chase. Meanwhile, what's happening is Abina's boyfriend, a young guy called Ian Urquhart, is working overtime at a local garage, a Ford dealership, where he's working on a tractor. And uh, he's working late in the belief that when he finishes, he'll be able to go home, get cleaned up and get down to the concert in time to pick up a beaner and drive her home. Just to fill in our listeners, Ian Urquhart was a member of a large family that had migrated from Scotland. His mother had died when he was very young and he and the other young ones had essentially been raised by their big sister, Heather who'd stayed home from school to look after the younger ones. Heather and her sisters Ivy and Kath, hardly more than children themselves, helped bring Ian up. Even after Heather left home at 17 to board in Shepparton, she saw the boy constantly. She was as anxious about his welfare as her mother would have been. The Urquhart's were a tight-knit clan and they looked after their little brother well. Like his brother David Jr., Ian showed a mechanical aptitude which was encouraged by their father's practical knowledge of farm machinery. So it was no surprise to any of the locals when first David Urquhart and then young Ian landed apprenticeships at the local Ford dealers, CTG Smith Motors. And that is where, on the night of February the 10th, 1966, the Urquhart brothers were working late on an important job. Ian was 18, he had a girlfriend, and there was a concert on, but work came first. It was the way they'd been brought up. He must have wondered sometimes over the next six years whether being so conscientious was worth it. When the Urquhart boys finished work at 10 o'clock that night, according to statements they later made to the police, David dropped Ian at his new lodgings. After a shower and a change of clothes, Ian walked to the Taverna Espresso Coffee Lounge in Friars Street. By the time he reached the cafe, the bands at the concert had started the second bracket. The crudely amplified music drifted into the warm summer night. The streets were dim because of statewide restrictions imposed by an electricity workers' strike. When Urquhart got to the coffee bar, he found his friend Peter Hazelman sitting with three others. He sat and chatted with them. He had plenty of time to kill. He had arranged to pick up a beaner at midnight and there wasn't much else to do but talk cars. 
After about half an hour, the other three left, so Peter and Ian decided to go and sit in Peter's car, a Fawn Austin A90. Outside, the streets were busy with the spillover from the concert and the carnival. The boys drove round aimlessly for a while. They pulled up outside a restaurant in Friar Street and sat in the car listening to the radio. They could see enough of the street near the Civic Centre to tell when the show was finished. At 11.20, they saw the concert goers spilling onto the street. Peter started the Austin and drove slowly past the Civic Centre to give Ian a chance to see a beaner waiting in the crowd on the footpath. Ian was getting anxious. He hadn't known a beaner long, but she was the first girlfriend he'd had, apart from schoolboy crushes. He asked Peter to drive to the Medill's house in Maxwell Street. When they reached the house, they parked for a few minutes, saw there was no activity and turned back towards the Civic Centre. They arrived just before midnight. Rosalind Medill and her friend Ray Croxford were standing in the street talking to someone in a car. Peter pulled up and Ian called the girls over and asked where Abina was. Rosalind hesitated, then told him the truth. Abina was driving around with Gary Haywood, her boss's nephew with the flash car. Ian's pride was wounded. I'll kill the bastard. I'll belt him, he said. It was a natural reaction, full of the exaggeration of anger. The girls got into the Austin for the promised ride home. They dropped Ray Croxford off first, then went to the Medills. When they arrived, Ian asked Rosalind to signal by turning on one of the house lights if Abina was home. She nodded and went inside. No light came on. It was 15 minutes after midnight. The first day of the rest of Ian Urquhart's short life had just begun. Coming up next week. As soon as he saw the Holden, Mr Haywood knew that Gary had not parked it. He climbed into the front seat with a heavy heart. Leslie felt a pang of apprehension. Two shepherd and teenagers were missing. The details were sketchy. For the Haywoods and the Medills, that first weekend was a foretaste of nightmare. With every hour, the parents knew it was more likely that their children had come to harm. But for the first two days, it seemed to them that no one in authority shared their concern. A troubled young woman. Her evil parents. We never had any issues between us. Has justice been done? I'm in a prison. Join journalist Richard Gilliatt as he delves into one of Australia's most gripping cases. Shadow of Doubt, a new podcast investigation from The Australian. I cannot find one of these allegations that's possible. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts.